Welcome to Conflict Managed. I'm your host, Mary Brown. Today on Conflict Managed, Dr. Melinda Burrell talks with us about the neuroscience of conflict, turning fear and anger into growth opportunities, and the universal importance of treating all people with respect. She shares personal workplace conflict experiences dealing with courage and the aftermath of mismanaged organizational change with a twist. We discuss David Rock's SCARF model, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, John Gottman's Magic Ratio, and Daniel Kedman's Thinking Fast and Slow. Melinda is a democracy and peace-building specialist who has spent 25 years living and working in conflict zones, from helping oversee the first post-war elections in Bosnia-Herzegovina to leading a humanitarian mission in Lebanon during the 2006 Israel-Hezbollah War. Her recent doctoral dissertation explores how Americans experience talking across political divides. Dr. Burrell now writes, speaks, and trains on the neuroscience of communication and conflict. As a board member of the National Association of Community Mediation, she supports dispute resolution centers around the country as they help their communities resolve conflicts such as those between neighbors, landlords and tenants, citizens and police, and most recently, school boards and parents. Good afternoon, Mindy, and welcome to Conflict Managed. Hi there. Thank you for inviting me. So happy to have you here today. I'm excited for this opportunity as well. Well, I'm really interested when I look at all of the different things that you've done to hear about your work history. Can you just start from the beginning, from the first job you had and up until today? Sure, absolutely. I started off, my. I, I joke saying that I actually have worked in conflict zones my entire life um, because my very first job was as a human rights lobbyist on Capitol Hill. Um, it was a while ago and things weren't quite as polarized and, and angry as they are now, but it was still, it was definitely its own sort of conflict zone. And so I did that work for about five years and then remembered, I, I grew up internationally and so I wanted to get back into the international field. So I went to graduate school in international relations and with sort of focusing particularly on democracy and governance. And while I was there, the State Department came recruiting people to be election monitors uh, in Bosnia because they were overseeing the elections for the first time um, since uh, the former U Yugoslavia war had ended. So I went over there and then that sort of launched me on 12 pretty wonderful years of doing humanitarian assistance programming in Eastern Europe and then again in the Middle East. And that gave me a really good sense of how quickly things can change, how quickly fear and anger can take hold of us and make us do and say things that we wouldn't do if we were in a, a different mental and emotional framework. Um, after about 12 years of that, um, I, for uh, personal reasons, I came back to the US and ended up getting a PhD where I was focusing more on domestic conflict, particularly looking at how liberals and conservatives experience talking across the divide. And again, it was just another chance to hear about how fear and anger can really change us, but how also many people have um, are, are coming up with different ways to be able to handle that situation and to be able to turn those moments of fear and anger into something that is a growth opportunity. Um, and so that led me into doing the work that I'm doing now, which is a lot of consulting, um, working with sort of different iterations of, of conflict that we're seeing in our society right now. Earlier today, I was just on a uh, webinar where I'm working with a, a bunch of 
dispute, local dispute resolution centers about how they can help school boards with their the conflicts that they're experiencing, either internally amongst members or uh, between different groups of parents or with the community at large. And I also have been doing, along the lines of what you're doing, a lot of workplace uh, conflict, particularly working with boards and helping boards to understand um, what may be their areas of potential conflict, how they might improve their communication mechanisms, and, and how they might also be ready to embrace those moments of, of conflict. Because as I've heard you say, they're telling us something about our, ourselves and our values and, and what interests us. What an amazing and interesting career in so many different facets. And yet it is all around conflict resolution, helping people communicate. Exactly. Yeah. So when you think about your different experiences, what resonates with you as the best work experience and what was good about it? I often think back to something that happened to me in that very first job. Um, and I'm so grateful that it happened in that very first job because it really gave me confidence to be able to handle conflict um, in ways. It's, it's, a, it's, it's confidence that I've been able to draw upon ever since. It was, I was 22 or 23, and I was a young woman working in a small nonprofit that had, the board was mostly 70 and 80 year old white men. Um, and I and two other young women had been hired. And needless to say, there was some, there was, there was conflict that was happening between us. We had different visions. We had different ways of understanding the world. We had different, certainly different perceptions of how to treat women in the workplace. And there was one moment at a board meeting where I just stood up and said in, in a way that I probably wouldn't <laughs> say these days, but I called someone on some language that he had been using. And I ended up, I, I could feel myself starting to get, starting to cry, which you never want to do. And so I, I sort of excused myself and left. And happily, while I was out, um, the board took my point and they created a resolution that would have addressed the language issue that I had pointed out. Um, so that happened over the weekend. And then on Monday morning, I walked in and I knew that I and the gentleman who had um, sort of created the, the situation in which I stood up and, and made my bold pronouncement, um, we, both were, we both were upset and we both were hurting. And I don't know why 22 year old Mindy had the wisdom to do this. But I said, I thought to myself, let's do something with this, with these emotions. And so I invited him to lunch and we talked about it. And we both made, I, I looking back on it now, I realized that we both made symbolic overtures to try and restore the relationship. For me, it was inviting him out to lunch. For him, it was letting me pay. He was a very wealthy older man. I had no money whatsoever, but I was bound and determined to pay. And he let me do it. And that for me was just this wonderful moment of realizing that you can lean into conflict. And if you go in with the right ideas and understanding, some really wonderful things can happen. And we became really good friends and we worked very well from there on afterwards. And it's been something, as I mentioned, I just feel much more confident about going into conflict situations and realizing I don't have to run away from them. I can think about them and find a good way to handle this particular way and just walk into it. It's so interesting because before, you know, when you're in the conflict, it feels, you know, you've said your piece, you, you leave and the emotions come and it feels, it just feels like in your body, 
all the way through that, you know, something, maybe you've laid a hand out that you didn't want to say, or you've made yourself vulnerable, but the only way through is through, right? If you want to resolve a conflict or you want to make progress, you got to do those hard things. And if you're unwilling to do it, you're not going to be on the other side. Absolutely. That's, that's so well put. Absolutely. You got to go through it. So with doing these hard things of these different countries that you've been in and many situations that were probably difficult, what has been the most helpful for, or do you find anything that's sort of universal when it comes to dealing with people in different cultures about helping them manage their, their fear when it comes to conflict? That is such an interesting question. The, the feedback that I've gotten over and over again from every context in which I've been is how grateful people are for the respect I've shown them. And it doesn't matter if I'm, you know, speaking with a, some sort of a Bosnian refugee or a, a Lebanese um, coworker or, or here in the United States, it's showing people respect. And I definitely have found that in the more recent work around speaking across the divide is just starting off with this sense of, I respect you. I may not understand all of what you're trying to tell me. I may not even understand fully where it's coming from, but I respect you and I want to, I'm going to demonstrate that respect by being curious and asking uh, a little bit more about why and how and why you're feeling this way and, and, and that sort of thing. That for me has been the universal um, to start to unlock conflict and to start to build the trust. I mean, that makes so much sense because when we respect somebody where we're saying, I see you as another human person that you have value mm -hmm. and we respect people because they have value and recognizing that and extending that to somebody else starts to build empathy, starts to build trust and rapport exactly. so that you can do the next thing, right? Exactly. It, it seems like maybe, and I've heard this a lot in social media and just even with some people that I've known, I don't respect that person. That person maybe is dead to me, you know, council culture. And I understand those emotions, right? Something that you really care desperately about and the person is fighting for the opposite. Exactly. Um, and yet- you know, what you're trying to do is help people have these conversations and um, maybe come across the divide. How do you, how do you do that? One of the most helpful tools that I've come across, and I think about this all the time in my personal life, as well as my professional life, and you may be familiar with it, is David Rock's scarf model. Um, I'm very interested in the neurobiology of conflict and communication. Um, and so in my research, uh, David Rock is actually, he's a management guru. And he, I think maybe about 10, 15 years ago, he also became interested in the neuroscience of all of this. And he interviewed, I think about 100, 150 neuroscientists. And he distilled what he learned from them about communication and conflict and what happens in our brains and bodies into something that he calls the SCARF model. <clears throat> and what, what this is about is the fact that in our brains, the same neural circuits that register threat and reward, it's the same circuits register both of those situations. And because humans are such social animals, we react, we feel threat in social situations as well as physical situations. So of course we all understand how 
<clears throat> you know, if we're on a trail and we hear a noise and suddenly we're afraid it's a big bear uh, chasing us, we understand that that feels like a physical threat. But what we're coming to understand more and more is that when we're in a situation, a social situation, and someone says something that puts us down, that is that those that registers the same circuits in our brain as that bear chasing us. Um, and so I've come to understand more and more the neurobiology of why respect is so important, because the scarf model describes those five social situations where our threat responses can be triggered and they're around status. And this isn't status, you know, are you being treated as a professor or a janitor sort of thing? It's status in what we've been talking about. Do you see me as a human being? So status, the C is certainty. We really, we're wired to crave some knowledge of what's coming at us, because obviously that's how we help to ensure our survival. Autonomy, we also are wired to want to have some control, particularly over decisions that will affect us. Relationship, um, that's another thing is we don't like to be alone. So if somebody isolates us, when you see a lot of the stuff that's going on in social media right now, the bullying and the isolating and, and the unfriending, that's tr that triggers us in, in it puts us into threat mode because we're afraid that we're losing our connection with our group that could help us survive. And fairness is the fifth one. And so I think about that tool all the time because essentially as a manager, as a coworker, as a team uh, team player, or just being in a family. I want to do as much as I can to create those good scarf conditions where people feel certain and autonomous and related and their status is being re uh, respected and they're being treated fairly. Because when that's happening, our the reward circuits in our brains are going off and we're feeling happy and we're feeling relaxed and we're feeling able to engage across. We're able to have those harder conversations where we really do need to be curious and open-minded and creative. And so spending as much time thinking about what is my role in this particular situation to create those good scarf conditions so that people that I'm interacting with feel relaxed and happy rather than threatened and scared because that's when their brains close down and the exact opposite happens. Oh, that's such a great um, way to help remember and think about how people behave in different sort of circumstances and to really think about that we're biological creatures, right? Yeah. Uh, whether or not we're anything else, we certainly are biological creatures. And what we can learn from neuroscience to help us really think about these quote unquote soft skills. Um, I don't like relegating um, how we treat people and those sorts of uh, ideas to the soft because it sounds like it's not important. Of course, it's essential. Mm -hmm. It's essential. How you make people feel will have to do with the kind of output they put for you, how they employ or are able to employ their, their quote unquote hard skills. But when we think about it from a neurobiological point of view and think about that we can do, that we can actually do things within our power to put other people at ease, to think about putting ourselves at ease or trying to understand why we're having a certain kind of response because we are biological. And I, I'm all about empowering people, right? The more we know, the more we know about triggers Sometimes we think it's like this ethereal emotions that come from nowhere. And if it's ethereal and out there, we don't have much control over it. But when we say, oh, my brain is reacting in a variety of ways to protect me, um, what is it telling me? So instead of like pushing those feelings down, the negative feelings, what we like to do, but really looking at them and saying, oh, okay, 
what can I learn? What am I supposed to be doing? How is this going to help me when I'm feeling threatened or I'm feeling like my autonomy is being um, taken away from me? How can I respond in a way that doesn't make it worse? Right? Exactly, exactly, exactly. Very well put. Oh, thank you. Uh, so when you think about um, all the different experiences that you've had, have you had any negative work experiences with a coworker or in an organization? Yes. And again, looking at it through the scarf prism, I can understand why. Um, it was uh, maybe I was sort of mid-career and the organization that I was working in was going through a big reorganization. Um, and so I was a team leader, but not a senior manager. And so for months, senior management had been telling us that this big reorganization is coming, this big reorganization is coming, but they didn't tell us anything more than that. And they didn't give us any opportunity for any input. And so anxiety, this goes back to the certainty. We had no certainty and we certainly weren't having any autonomy in this situation. The anxiety across the office was just increasing. And finally the big reveal day came and they, uh, the senior management announced the reorganization just in a, a huge staff meeting and took a few questions. Most of us were sort of in sort of stunned silence. Um, but then in the days afterwards, things really began to percolate and they began to realize there was an awful lot of pushback. And just thinking about my own personal experience. So there was, first of all, this long period of uncertainty um, and there was no chance for input or, or autonomy. And then the change that I was subject to was that one team leader and I were simply swapped. Um, and both of us felt so hurt by that because it felt like we were, our particular skills and talents were not being valued. We were seen as just absolutely interchangeable, which we certainly weren't. And I, you know, understand that that is this, you know, definitely the status um, thing was, was kicking in there. Um, and I learned, I, I learned an, a, a lot from that. I learned much more about change management and about how to make sure that you are communicating very clearly both what you as a manager do know and what you don't know and everything that you do know from timelines to what's up for consideration and, and whatnot, make sure that you share that with people. Definitely get input because what happened in this situation was we all of us resisted in our different ways and, and gave very, you know, help feedback in very unhelpful ways often in the form of storming off or whatever. Um, and they did end up having to change their reorganization. So they got the input eventually, but in a very counterproductive way. Um, so I'm, that was that was a very negative situation from which I learned a lot. Um, and once again, using the SCARF tool, I'm able to see, had I been uh, in charge of that process, I would have done it very differently. So how long did you stay with that organization after the situation occurred? To be honest, that was an anomaly. Um, mm. It was one of the few times that that senior management team had made some missteps. Um, so I very happily stayed on much longer. Um, but that gets back to, you know, there was this store of goodwill that had mm -hmm. been built up. And that is another sort of, uh, this is actually is a psychological study that I think about all the time, which I'm sure you're familiar with. The magic rule of John Gottman and... Uh, where this is, it started off as a marriage counseling survey. And um, he and his team would bring couples into a room and 
just watch them interact for a while. And what they realized was that after a while, they could predict which couples would stay together and which ones would get divorced. And they found out that if they had at least five positive interactions to outweigh every negative interaction, that was the magic formula for staying together. Um, and they've since, as, as I'm sure you know, um, they since have repeated this study for workplace conditions and team conditions. And they found that it does take, because we're human beings and we're wired to focus on the negative, because we need to, we need to understand the negative in order to make sure that we're staying alive. We tend to discount the positive. So that's another thing that I think about a lot is how do I maintain those stores of goodwill so that if and when there's a miscommunication, one or the other of us, instead of reacting um, and thinking, feeling threatened and you know, perhaps cutting off communication, we'll say, ooh, you know, I didn't expect that. I've, that's not normally the way I, we communicate. Can, can we talk about this for a moment? Yeah, and absolutely. When you have goodwill with an organization or with a person, you're more likely to, to look at something, as you said, as an anomaly. And if you have a good relationship, they're more likely to say, to, to be able to take stock and say, yeah, we made a mistake, right? Exactly. So that sort of, you know, that, that um, psychological maturity, right? Of being able to have these relationships so that they can bear the brunt of mistakes because we're all going to make mistakes. Yeah. We are going to get the wrong input, not ask for input, make unilateral decisions because the team leaders think, oh, this is great, but haven't asked the people on the ground. It happens. And mistakes are going to happen. And so if you have an organization that plans for it, and you can plan for it, as you said, by pouring into people, having good relationships so that when you make a mistake or they do, these olive branch can be extended so that you can talk. As you said in the, the first instance with this older gentleman, even though maybe you didn't have all this goodwill to start with, you decided to extend this branch and then you built a relationship. Mary, that's again a beautiful articulation. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, on a little bit of a side note, um, I want to say that my favorite document that I've ever read is the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And I taught philosophy for over 20 years. And I would, in every class I could, I would distribute copies and I'd, we'd read it out loud and I'd have everybody go around because I taught ethics for ever so long. And I'd get a lot of... Um, a lot of people come in, I think, naively being relativist, like, oh, there is no such thing. And, or where would we even begin? Mm -hmm. And so um, I, love, I love that document because it's a great starting place, I think, for what does it mean to treat people with respect, right? Well, what, what does that look like? And if, if you don't know, listener, what, it, what that looks like, I, I recommend reading that document because it's a wonderful place to start thinking about how do I want to be treated if I'm in my in my um, in my country or just how should I expect to be treated and how should I expect to treat other people so though I never talk about these sorts of things on this um, podcast do you have any any other sorts of books or do you want to make any comments on that document or have you used it at all in your work it's definitely one of those things that's always in the background of, of international work. Um, those are definitely guiding principles. Um, you are making me think that I want to pull it out and parse it too, um, because I think that probably a lot more could be done more explicitly with it. I mean, in terms of other resources, um, the, particularly thinking about the neurobiology of communication and conflict, 
for, I, I definitely recommend the scarf, uh, the scarf formula um, by David Rock. That's something that I do think about a lot. The Daniel Kahneman Thinking Fast and Slow. I don't know if that's a book that, that you've had a chance to read, but he talks about, just sort of goes a little bit more deep in depth into how we process information. And, and he makes the point that um, neuroscientists and, and psychologists and others over the last many years have come to realize is that, as you said, we, you know, we often think of ourselves as very rational creatures, but really we're emotional creatures. And only when we're feeling relaxed and we're feeling unthreatened and validated, are we actually able to engage our rational processes. And so he has, he, in this book, he does a wonderful job of explaining that, what is called the dual processing um, information system, where, you know, essentially, because we have limited brain capacity and because our brains are designed to keep us alive, through our lives, drawing on our own experience and the experience that we've gained from others, we've created dozens and dozens and dozens of mental models in our heads for, you know, if I see a man with a gun, I then do this. And sometimes those mental models are great and they serve us really well. Sometimes they serve us really poorly, particularly because our modern world is so very socially based and the mental models in our head tend to be more around keeping us physically safe. Um, and so it, it gets back to the point that you were making too, that the more we understand how our brains work, what sources of information they process and how they process that information. And if we particularly understand all the different biases that we have, we're able to understand ourselves more and then we're also able to engage people more, more constructively. Um, I, there's a lot of information, I think particularly these days about things like confirmation bias. As we talk about um, in social media and in traditional media, how very separated we are, how we often are seem to be living in our echo chambers, the news sources that we turn to, the friends that we have, it all is reinforcing our worldview. Um, and that is something that we're naturally wired to do with confirmation bias. We sort of absorb like sponges. Yeah, I agree with you. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And when somebody, you know, gives us a little bit of a piece of information or something that starts to chip away the way we may see the world, we tend to just discount it. Um, so understanding that sort of bias, another one that I think is so relevant to working with other people um, is it's something called the fundamental attribution uh, error. And this is essentially double standards. We're wired to have double standards. If I'm late for a meeting, then I think oh, the traffic was so bad. I, I'm sorry. I don't usually do this. Traffic was so bad. But when Sally shows up late, I'm like, here she goes again. She's so, she's disrespectful. She's disorganized. I can't believe she's late yet again. And so I think that that, that particular book, Thinking Fast and Slow, is just a really good way to get a handle on all that's going on inside of us. Um, and then being able, it gives you a chance to sort of think it through and, and figure out how can I apply this knowledge to myself and my interactions over, uh, you know, whether it's in a podcast or whether it's at the dinner table or, or in a workplace meeting room. Well, that's great. I'll put both of those recommendations in the show notes. So anybody can go and look at those and click on those links to find those resources. Terrific. When we talk about fear and shame um, and anger, uh, that seems to drive a lot of what's going on in, in culture. It seems to me that 
um, when you have a lot of fear and a lot of anger, we're not open to listening, right? And not open to having a fruitful conversation. I just want to yell at you and shake you because you're wrong. I'm right. This is just, you're not. And I understand those emotions, right? Those are, those are understandable and, and that it's good that we should be on the fight for justice as we see it, right? That that is, or advocate, I like advocate better than fight, advocate for justice. Um, but I think that what I would hope to encourage people to do is to de-escalate yourself, right? Emotionally regulate, because if your goal is to um, actually move the needle or to be fruitful, uh, being inflammatory, blaming, shaming, yelling, isn't gonna get you your goal, right? It's not gonna get people to see, oh, I, I never thought of it that way, or, or for me to understand the other side, whatever the other side might be. But to really, as you, as you said, be, to be thoughtful, right? So if we can think about our own responses that develops empathy for ourselves, but for others, oh, they have responses and they're telling themselves a particular story. And if we can somehow sort of de-escalate what is going on, I don't know how to do that in the face of social media because social media and, and it, like the shock jock radio that started in the eighties or even before that escalates because that's about commerce. Um, but that's not what makes a good society, right? A good society is a charity, principle of charity. I, I want to understand you. I want to understand your point. And if you misspeak, I want to understand it instead of I gotcha so that I can get money or likes or whatever. Any, any uh, tips for how we can de-escalate? culture the escalation that is yeah that's 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 such a great word to be using for right now and as a matter of fact i'm working on a project um, in conjunction with the national association for community mediation where we're trying to work with election officials and poll workers to give them the skills to de-escalate tensions um, around you know any any of our uh, election work because people you know this is a going to be a point where people are coming in with set opinions and uh, um, and ideas and and they're going to be coming in, in contact with others um, but in terms of de-escalation and being ready to creating the conditions to have a better conversation one of the things that I noticed um, it, it was a, a bit of a self-experiment um, the uh, a colleague and I uh, have very different political views and we have been trying over the last several years to just make sure that we're constantly having conversations and we're constantly, you know, sort of experimenting with what are the best ways to have conversations? Because I know that we both have had moments where one of them sends a text about an issue and the other one of us like picks it up and is so angry. We just want to throw the phone across the room. And clearly we're, you know, we have to figure out ways to sort of calm ourselves down and engage in conversation. And there was one time, it was about uh, four or five months ago where it was, no, it was probably actually about last year because it was when vaccine mandates were still um, something that everyone was talking about every day. And we decided that we wanted to have a conversation about mandates. Um, and for some reason we decided we would do it over the phone at nine o'clock on a Friday morning. And I admit, I went to bed thinking, oh, I don't wanna spend the first part of my morning yelling about vaccine mandates because I know that's going to happen and I don't want it to happen. So I woke up a little bit early and I 
said, I, I sent him an email and I suggested that we create an agenda for how we would use our hour together. And I said, why don't we spend the first five or 10 minutes defining goals for this conversation? Because we could pick up the phone right now and just start yelling. But why don't we try and figure out like, what do we want to get out of this? Why are we having this conversation? And so we did that. And then it was absolutely fascinating because then we went on to have the conversation about vaccine mandates. But because we had primed ourselves for the fact that we wanted to, we definitely wanted to avoid getting into a yelling match. And we instead wanted to at least listen. We agreed we probably aren't going to convert each other, but let's at least learn where the other person is coming from. I noticed that every time we began to launch a different aspect of this argument, this issue, things that had we not had that priming conversation, I would have been like, and, you know, I could have feel the flames like starting to shoot up through myself. But because we had primed ourselves for the goal of listening to each other, I had no emotion around it. I truly was able to, ah, right. Okay. And he was as well. Um, And so I think that that's something part of de-escalation is the planning that you've spoken about. It's not only in the moment, but it's also putting some guardrails around what you're trying to accomplish when you go into that situation. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I mean, we say expectation is king, right? So if you set the expectation, yes, then, oh, this is what we're doing, right? Exactly. That's, I love that. That's really lovely. And as you were speaking, I was thinking one thing that, you know, we do with mediation is we talk about the problem is the problem, not the person. Yes. And I, and it comes back to your idea of respect, right? What do all people at base need? They need to feel respected. And I wonder if that's one of the main things we could do in our culture is try to, and maybe I will try to do this myself when people talk about somebody else being a moral degenerate or whatever, say, okay, well, what specifically is the issue? Because it's not the person, their mama loves them and, and they do these other things in the community, right? Um, So what is the issue? Oh, you don't like their issue on abortion, abortion rights or the death penalty or economic theory or whatever it might be. Okay. You don't like that behavior they're exhibiting. So let's talk about that, but not about the person. That's, that's a non-starter. They deserve dignity and respect independent of what they do or don't do or think. I think that's fantastic. Um, And I know I, yeah, it's, it's something that I try and challenge myself to do. It's, it can be hard because another sort of thing that we're dealing with is the fact that there is both that we're dealing not only with the other side of whatever issue or, um, or division there is, but we're also dealing with our own group. And that's something that my, my friend across the aisle and I both realized as we started to do this work to try and understand each other. And we sometimes publish together is we both could face condemnation from our own sides for not being pure enough and solid enough and maintaining the boundaries. And so I noticed on um, your most recent uh, podcast, you were talking a lot about the theme of courage. And sometimes it's courage not only to step into the conflict with the person with whom you have an apparent conflict, but it's also the courage to be able to take on the different opinions and perhaps the 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 fact that you may create new conflicts with people who are on your side and and think that you should be more more true to your side. Yeah, that's we are very reticent to step outside the herd, as you said, with the scarf, right? We 
you know, belonging and relationship uh, status. These are all intertwined and we, we want to be accepted. And when it comes to political issues, just it takes very little uh, to be ousted from, from the group because there's this thing that we have to stay as a pack, a herd pack in order to get our message across because it's gotta be simple. It's gotta be able to be in a tweet. And if you nuance it, we lose people. You're losing people for the greater cause. Stop it, right? Yeah. Get it together. This is the message be on point, um, which is not good for a democracy, right? So we don't want that kind of homogeneous thinking. And that is a kind of, I mean, I guess it's puritanical. Our roots are puritanical where everybody, you know, we say yeah. diversity as long as it's whatever belief it is, you know. Exactly, exactly. And you're right. And and there's so much about our culture that divides us into binaries. Um, you know, it's we essentially have two parties. Um, our legal system is is, you know, very adversarial between two parties. Usually there's so much that just promotes that we're going to reduce things down into good or evil, um, one side, my side or your side sort of thing. And you're right. There's no room for, we need to be encouraging the respect that leads to the curiosity and the courage to get, to pull out the nuances. Absolutely. Yeah. Courage, I do think is, is the mother virtue because, you know, even if you know, maybe the right thing to do is so maybe you have the wisdom or whatever, but if you don't have the courage, you won't do it. And courage means, you know, willing to take the loss, take the hit, stand alone, be misunderstood. Yeah. But we also desperately want to belong. And that that's good. Belonging is really good, but not the toxic belonging, which ends up being fake, right? Very true. Very true. Yeah. With people ready to cut their ties with you if, as soon as you step outside rather than accepting and understanding you. Absolutely. I, I My hope is that as we move more into, so we've got, you know, diversity, inclusion, we have all of these different ways of thinking about the workplace and hopefully broader that as we be, maybe become a little bit more sophisticated, that maybe we, we start thinking about inclusion, we really will think about how much we benefit in business, in our communities, in our personal lives from embracing people and their nuance and, and really encouraging people to be authentic and not just be caricatures of whatever type there is out there and see the value of having, you know, millions of people with everyone being slightly different, you know, the really embracing that kind of true diversity and then being able to include all of those voices and those ways of being. Of course, we're not there. And, um, but I, I hope, I mean, there's, there's this bottom line um, argument to be made for diversity inclusion, right? That the more we do that, the more money you're gonna make. It's just, it makes business sense, let alone human sense, you know, to treat people well. But, and sometimes in a capitalist system, that's how changes are made. When you actually see it's beneficial to your bottom line to treat people well, and that means allowing them to be themselves and really bringing everyone to the table, maybe that will leak out. I don't know. What do you think? Is that possible? I think so. I I think that... I'm so encouraged. That's one of the, the reasons that I enjoy working with uh, the National Association for Community Mediation so much, because it I have a chance to hear from people who are doing this kind of work um, in their communities all around the country and the wonderful successes they're having. Like, so just one of them is in Dayton, Ohio. They have just started coming out of the, 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 the 
sort of the, the upheaval around the George Floyd murder, they were one of the communities that had big conversations between citizens and police about how do we do this better? How do we all work together for true safety for all of us? And what the response that they came up with is they've created a mediation response unit. So people call into 911 and there is someone and the, the person who's answering that call understands which are the, the calls that need to be funneled to the police, but which are things that actually could be mediated. And this is a sort of first of its kind program that started uh, in March. And so all, all the, the conversations that are like noise complaints or issues about a homeless person on the, the sidewalk or um, other things like that, they send in a team of mediators who are they have no arms. They're not They're All they're doing is, is the de-escalation that you were talking about. And then the trying to help sort of tease out the, well, why, you know, why is, what can be done to solve this noise complaint short of having one person, you know, taken in or something like that. Um, and so I think that the more and more shows like yours are out there disseminating these ideas and the more we're able to take these um, examples of really good best practices and share them because we're all crying out for a solution. That's the thing is very few of us actually like this level of anger and fear in our societies. We all want to find a better way to interact with each other. So I think that we have the appetite, we have a lot of the skills and the knowledge, and it's just about creating the space to practice them and to build on them. Well, that's beautiful. I mean, and it's so simple and it's, what I love about it is nothing new. It's humans, right? And from time immemorial, how did humans solve problems with other humans or war? I mean, it's like you can either go the route of listening, um, working together, being creative, solving the problem, or you can go to war, right? Exactly. And we see, well, what is preferable, obviously, being human and talking things out? And what has better outcomes? Being human, talking things out. And um, it's more cost effective, it has better outcomes, but it is time intensive, right? Because humans, um, while computers can do some things for us, humans need other humans. Humans need to be listened to. And sometimes it is just in the listening. In, in the listening itself is where the problem, it gets solved. Um, and that's just very encouraging. I love that. I hope, I hope for us all that there are more mediators out there and, you can be an amateur mediator. There's lots of different resources out there um, where you can just start listening. And it doesn't mean, I mean, I certainly suffer from trying to fix too many things. And I know I love fixing the problem. Give me a problem, I wanna fix it. And I see that in myself that is that, am I trying to fix it because it makes me feel better, mm -hmm. but it's not really for them. And so really trying to be for others is being present. And even though it might feel good for me to solve it, that may not be for them, probably isn't. They need to solve it and I need to help make the conditions. And that's all of us. All of us can be in that mindset of making the conditions for others to flourish, to heal, to be heard. And then it ends up getting back on us that, that, uh, that reflects us as well, a better society to live in. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that that was beautifully put. So thank you for that. <laughs> thank you. So Mindy, as you look into the future of work, what do you see? What, what do you see that is going to help people be respected in their workplaces? Because you know, a lot of people suffer from toxic work environments, from really awful environments. What, what do you see could be put in place to help everyone flourish in their work environment? 
I think that I'll go back to what I said about, you know, programs such as yours. Um, I think that it comes down to the way you started off um, with this, this podcast, talking about the importance of self-knowledge. And there are increasing examples. We're, we're getting that information about neurobiology and about the skills that are required for active listening or cultivating empathy or things like that more and more. And so I think that as we just continue to build the store of understanding um, about ourselves and about what works and how to create those good conditions and the flip side of it, that what happens when we don't create those good conditions, then I think that the more skills we put in people's hands, the more they're able to explore and use them. And again, the better it will get. Yeah, that's great. So let's do more research and have those source, those resources available for everyone, owners, managers, and the part-time seasonal worker for everybody. So we can all have better work environments. Well, Mindy, thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely lovely chatting with you today. Mary, I've enjoyed it very much. You ask wonderful questions and you provide a lot of insight. I, I've learned a lot. <laughs> Thanks, Mindy. Me too. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Conflict Managed. And thank you, Mindy, for sharing your experiences and insights with us today. We would greatly appreciate it if you liked and shared this podcast with others. Leave us a review. It helps us get the word out about how we can have better conversations with one another. Conflict Managed is produced by third-party workplace conflict restoration services. I'm your host, Mary Brown. Our music is courtesy of Dove Pilot. And remember... Conflict is normal and to be expected. Let's deal with it. Until next time, take care.